Thank you again, worship team. This leads in songs of praise of our God and our Savior. It's just meditating upon that song and that lyric, that chorus there. Just that part where I thought, greatly to be praised, you are uh, beautiful. You know, that's, that term of beauty, I was like, wow. I never, you don't, we often don't think about uh, the salvation that we have that we praise uh, as a beautiful thing. In a sense, we, we think of like a sunsets or, you know, you know, people. But uh, in that day when we see uh, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed, uh, I believe that it will be the most beautiful thing we've ever seen in our lives. So uh, that's just kind of a wonderful truth. Thank you, uh, team, again, for praising us, for focusing our thoughts upon uh, Jesus Christ and our God who saves us. If you have your Bibles, uh, please look with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5 this morning as we continue our series through the book of Isaiah. Oh, man. <clears throat> Pardon me, I feel a little warm up here. So, you know, if you get warm, you can feel free. You can take off your coat, you know, like I did. Uh, oh, wait. You guys already have your coats off. Good. <laughs> Isaiah, if you kind of think about Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 are sort of an introduction. Uh, normally, the prophets, when they begin, uh, major prophets, think of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah particularly, it begins with the calling or sort of the, the, the calling of the prophet. But the calling of Isaiah as a prophet doesn't actually, isn't actually explained until Isaiah chapter 6. That's uh, the, check, the next chapter after this. So because of that, really all of Isaiah 1 through 5 is probably spoken after Isaiah's calling. So by why does Isaiah 1 to 5 exist? And we understand, we believe that Isaiah 1 to 5 serves as an introduction, a prologue, if you will, uh, sort of a, an overview of all that God wants, to say, God wants to say through the prophet Isaiah in a sense of previewing uh, that which he's going to speak. And so Isaiah chapter 5 sort of serves as that conclusion to this introductory section. He's uh, God has uh, warned Israel about the coming judgment upon the nation of Judah uh, not only the near fulfillment of that the, the, with the conquest of uh, by Babylon, but there's a far ultimate judgment that's coming too, uh, the day of the Lord that's coming where God will judge Israel as well. And Isaiah 5 is a sort of a conclusion that God concludes with a, a picture, a parable, if you will, a, pic, uh, a picture of, of what, is going, what, is take, what has taken place with Israel to sort of give us a, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, that's sort of what the Lord does by painting a picture through the prophet Isaiah of this picture the, of a vineyard. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Again, we're going through the whole chapter, so we'll read the passage within the sermon this morning. We'll, uh, uh, and so I won't have the reading as we normally do at the beginning. So will you join with me one more time in prayer as we come before God's word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is truth. These are your words, your thoughts. And Father, we pray that you would teach us your words, teach us your thoughts. Father, may you cause your word to come, go forth, not return void. Give us a, a better understanding of your message to your people uh, in, in Isaiah's day, and understand its meaning and its application to the people of God today. Father, uh, may you minister to each one here uh, as you, uh, through your word, and may you cause us to grow in a greater love for you, a greater love for uh, your, your provision of salvation uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' teaching ministry, he often used parables to teach. Uh, parables, um, 
And uh, for those of us who may not be familiar with parables, a parable was, it's basically a form of figurative language. It's a, but it's a, it's a story. It's this form of figure that involves a story that's from every, taken from everyday life, something that the people who were listening to the parable would understand. Um, but a parable, a story from everyday life to illustrate a spiritual truth. And Jesus used many such parables. Whereas, first of all, just telling a story using a picture from everyday life, illustrations, are just when, you know, when I go through sermons, and if I use a stop and I give an illustration, it sort of piques our curiosity. It makes us think about it in a different way that we didn't think about before. But Jesus, according to the scriptures in Matthew 13, 14, he used parables also as a way of hiding the truth from the unbelieving. He didn't want, uh, there were many unbelieving that day, and, and, if, and he told parables so that they would not understand. And in fact, this was done in fulfillment of the prophecy, uh, in fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah's prophecy in particular, uh, that we'll find in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, among the many parables that Jesus told in his days, one of the most common everyday settings for his parables was that of the vineyard. Now, a vineyard was something that was very familiar to them in their culture. Here, Living here in Northern California, we know what vineyards are. We're familiar with vineyards in the sense that we, we live not far away from Napa, where many vineyards exist, or in Marin County. Now, but in, in the day of which Isaiah lived, and where uh, all their primary drink was wine, you can imagine that there must have been many vineyards that were grown because that was the fruit which they would use to make their drink. Uh, they didn't just drink water because water was, you know, was not uh, clean at that time. So vineyards was a very common uh, picture for people of of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, Jesus' days. Interestingly, Jesus uses this vineyard this vineyard theme in at least four of his parables. And so it has a significant place. But parables were not just unique to Jesus' ministry. We find that the prophets of the Old Testament also used many parables to teach as well. In today's passage, the prophet Isaiah himself uses a parable. He uses a parable to teach the people of God. And this parable, surprisingly or interestingly, is also about a vineyard. And so what's kind of neat is that, or particularly if we're kind of studying the Bible and you want to study through the Bible, a very natural question that one might ask is, how does Isaiah's parable of the vineyard relate to Jesus' several parables of the vineyard? Is there any relation to the two? Is there any connection? Before we can answer that question, and I would say that there is, before we can answer that question, though, we need to understand Isaiah's parable first because this parable precedes all of Jesus' parables of the vineyard. Now, as we study this passage, we're going to come to an understanding of the text, understand its meaning. We'll see its application also for us today. And one of the primary applications that we're going to learn and glean from this text, be encouraged by this text, is the necessity for the people of God today, the church of Jesus Christ today, to bear much fruit, to be fruitful for the Lord. That we don't just kind of, once we get saved, just kind of sit on our hands and just do nothing. But that we actually are motivated and we understand that God's calling to us to bear fruit for the Lord in all of the ways that the Lord would have us. And I trust that it would encourage you in your life that you would bear much fruit for him. As a simple outline for us today, parables, this parable of the vineyard, there are going to be two elements we'll, look, we'll take a look at. Two elements of this parable of the vineyard that challenge us to be fruitful for the Lord. So let's take a look then at the first part. 
Isaiah begins with the telling of the parable. Even as Jesus, when he told parables, he would tell the parable, and then he would sort of explain the parable. That's what we find here. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 7, we find the chosen vineyard described. Jesus tells this parable. Now, we can further break down this parable into three sections. The first is the description of the vineyard. And we read this in verses 1 to 2. Look at me with me to chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. Isaiah writes, Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. That's kind of neat, especially when we study the life of Isaiah, the ministry of Isaiah. He does many different things. I, I think one of the things I'm looking forward to is trying to understand how he goes naked for a period of years in his ministry. But here we find a very interesting thing is that Isaiah in his ministry actually sings this prophecy. It's singing. You know, normally uh, the prophets would sometimes communicate through sermons. They would, through, through a speech given, uh, sometimes they would do something, kind of an illustration. They would uh, maybe eat some a scroll as a sign. But here... Isaiah sings the prophecy. It's kind of like me, you know, if I was going to preach. Can you imagine if I just started singing the whole sermon to you? You would probably love it. You'd say, oh, more, more, please, more, more. No, you would like, no more, no more. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> but no, that's what Isaiah does. He sings. And, it's, and if you look at it, it's kind of interesting. Three times mentioned, he calls the Lord his beloved, well-beloved, twice and once beloved. This is, this is sort of like a love song. You know, it's kind of a, it's interesting. It comes out across as a, a love song, a song of, of that's motiv- motivated by uh, Isaiah's love for his Lord. And that's just, just devotionally just encouraging to us. And that reminds us that our Lord, can we sing of him as the one whom we love? You know, is he the one whom our songs of love expressed are expressed to? This parable is... Uh, Sung and Isaiah sings it, and he sings it about the Lord God and a vineyard that belongs to the Lord God. We know here in this vineyard that that is described in this parable that it, the vineyard belongs to the Lord. It belongs to Him. It's it's His vineyard, uh, it, and therefore, as His vineyard, He has every right to do whatever He wishes to do uh, with the vineyard. We know, secondly, that the Lord put in great effort to prepare this vineyard. Now this, since this was his vineyard, if you're going to grow a vineyard, you wouldn't just like, ah, oh, just throw a little grapevine there and just kind of neglect it. But you might want to do something about it. You want to prepare it. Make sure that it, it grows healthy uh, to produce healthy fruit. And God does everything that is necessary. He chose the location. He prepared its soil. He removed the obstacles for its growth. He made sure that he planted the choicest and the best vines in this vineyard. He built a tower to, that where people could, could stand watch from and guarding the whole vineyard so they could see far around the vineyard. And then on top of that, he also made a vat, created a wine vat to hold all the, the produce, the, the, the results of the, of the grapes, of the, of the produce of the vineyard. Now, after doing all this, we know, too, thirdly, that the Lord then expected this vineyard to bear much fruit, right? If you're going to do all this work, you would expect it to bear fruit. You expect to have a great harvest of good choice, quality grapes. But surprisingly, it says here in in this parable that it produced only worthless ones. It produced some kind of fruit, but it was a worthless kind of fruit. Maybe it was a shriveled up, really small, too tiny. Maybe it was just not right for making wine. 
So it was a disappointment. And this is the picture of this, of, this is the picture, the description of this vineyard. So what does one do with such a vineyard? What would you do with such a vineyard? Well, God himself answers with what he would do with such a vineyard. In the verses 3 to 6, we find a description of the destruction of this vineyard. In verse 3 to 6. Let's read it. Look at verse 3 to 6. The voice changes now. Isaiah is singing here, but he's singing God's words. And this is God speaking. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. That is, he's saying he's inviting the people of Israel to... To make a decision. Help him decide. What would they do with regards to him and his vineyard? Verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then I expected it, why when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. God, having called the people of Judah to answer, God gives his answer. And what is his answer? He's going to destroy it. There's actually two questions he asks, rhetorical questions he asks in verse 4. He asks, what more can be done to this vineyard? Is there anything he can do to make it better, to make it fruitful, to make it grow? The implication is, no, there's nothing else he can do. He's done everything that can be done. So then he asks the same question. Why does this vineyard produce worthless grapes instead of good ones? And so the purpose and the intention of these rhetorical questions is not only to cause Israel to think about it, but to cause them to come to the realization that there's nothing wrong with the vineyard owner. There's something wrong with the vineyard itself. So, therefore, instead of continuing to invest in a bad vineyard, a vineyard that produces only worthless fruit, God says in verses 5 to 6 that he would allow it to be destroyed. Verse 5 is considered to be a key verse in the first half of Isaiah. Now remember, Isaiah is broken into two sections, right? We've divided into two sections, chapters 1 through 39. talks about God's judgment that's coming upon Judah. Chapters 40 to 66, 40 through 66, generally speaks of God's comfort and God's salvation that is going to come to Judah. If we could summarize all of chapters 1 through 39, we could summarize it by this verse in verse 5 of chapter 5. So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. Chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah is essentially God's explaining to the people of Judah what he's going to do with his vineyard. He's going to destroy it because of their sin. And we read on, we read in this text that he would remove its protection and thus he would no longer protect it, according to verse 5. He would remove. He would. Uh, he would furthermore no longer cultivate uh, this uh, this vineyard, allowing it to the briars and the thorns to grow up in it. You know, just even if you gar- if you have a garden or you have a yard, and you don't do anything to it. Eventually, what goes up in this area? All sorts of you know weeds and whatnot, right? You know, some moles start coming up, eating your grass, and all sorts of crazy stuff. But that's what happens when God says, "I'm no longer going to cultivate. I'm no longer protect it." So. Basically, people are just going to come in or animals will come and trample all over it and the whole field will just be left to be destroyed. Now, the Israelites listening to this picture of this vineyard, this parable of the vineyard, would have probably agreed with God. They said, well, you know, because you know, God asked them, what would you do with such a vineyard? What would you do if you were had a garden, you'd done all you could to it, and then it, or a, a, a vineyard, and then all of a sudden the vineyard doesn't produce any fruit? 
you would just say, forget that. I'm not going to put my, more energy into that. I'm just going to let it grow and lie fallow. Let it just kind of uh, be consumed, even, do, uh, even re- redo it if you wish. But there's something wrong with that vineyard. And that's what God said. And so these Israelites were thinking, yeah, that's what we would have done. But God then, in verse 7, gives a, a big reveal, if you will. He reveals that the vineyard isn't just a vineyard. He's not asking just because he needs some horticultural advice from the uh, Israelites. In verse 7, we see the, de- the denunciation of the vineyard. God is sort of condemning uh, Israel in this passage. This has a sort of a feel of, of a Nathan and David situation, right? In 2 Samuel 12, 1, 12 7. Nathan says to David, after telling this, the parable of this, you know, this little, uh, the sheep that was basically uh, taken advantage of, says, you are the man. You're the one. This is kind of what God says. You are the vineyard, Israel. You are the ones that have, I have chosen. I've set aside. I've done all that I can to make you, cause you to grow. I provided for you abundantly and richly, but you've produced only worthless fruit. And now I'm going to allow you to be destroyed. This was Israel. This was his God's chosen vineyard. It's not just one of the nations that God was not, in a sense, the God of. This is God's people. The vineyard would become in the, in the Old Testament a common image. Actually, the whole Bible would be a common image for Israel. In Psalm 80, chapter 80, verse 8 through 9, Israel is described there as a vine that God actually took. He plucked up from Egypt and then in, he planted in the promised land. And even as he planted it, he made sure he cleared the promised land of, of obstacles like the, the enemy nations. He made sure that they received his blessings and, they, that, and he caused them as a vine to be fruitful and share their blessings to the nations. Israel was set apart among all, from all the nations of the earth to receive God's blessing and to be a blessing. To be, receive his his. his uh, his salvation, receive his truths, and then pass those truths on to the world. God expected Israel to produce fruits, just like justice, like righteousness. But when he looked upon his nation, his vineyard, he found only bloodshed. He found only cries of distress. Remember Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, where God had earlier said, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. See, despite God's choice of Israel, her sins had hindered her calling as God's vineyard. And so God was going to judge her with destruction. He was going to bring a destruction upon her. He was going to, in a sense, send them, give them the judgment that they deserved. He would send them into captivity. And this ends the parable. This is the, the verse 1 to 7. That's where the, Israel is their vineyard of the Lord. But because they had failed to bear fruit, God says to them, I'm going to send you into destruction. I'm going to destroy you as a nation. In the reigning verses of this chapter, of chapter 5, Isaiah then details the sin and the judgment of the Lord's vineyard. What is this worthless fruit that Israel has been producing? God says that they've been producing worthless fruit. They're producing something. Most of our lives produce something. But instead of justice and righteousness, in verses 8 through 30, God details for Israel all the worthless fruit that they produce. It comes across, uh, and we call this, the, we can 
title this, The Corrupt Vineyard Detailed. We can break these, this, these whole, uh, these 23 verses into two sections as well. Uh, we can, first, Isaiah is going to describe much of its worthless fruit in the form of six woes upon Israel. And then he's going to describe in two passages, it's coming judgment. It's coming judgment that because of its worthless fruit, God is going to bring a judgment upon them and the nature of that, what that judgment is and really the overarching reasons for that judgment. So first of all, we looked in at the, Judah or God's vineyard, the Lord's vineyards, the worthless fruit that it produces. He does so through these six woes upon the nation. And the woe in the Hebrew language is specifically, it's not a, actually has a, it's not a word that really has any particular meaning, but it's sort of a sound. It's kind of like how we say, oh, you know, or wow. It really, by itself, it doesn't mean, but it, it conveys basically the agony or the, the, this a sense of groaning or of dismay at coming judgment. If you knew that something bad was going to happen to you, how do you express it? You know, you go, oh, ow. This is kind of that word, woe. It says, this is what you will feel when this judgment comes upon you. Woe upon you is coming because of the ju- coming judgment of the Lord. So there are six woes that we find here of regarding the nation of Israel. And sometimes when we come through the section uh, in Isaiah, when you're reading through it, you kind of come to these sections, you kind of just kind of, you just kind of gloss over the whole thing. It's easy to do that because it's just a list, a list of six sins. But I hope that devotionally, as we look at this list, we can see that these sins are just not unique to Israel. They're not just unique to society. It's kind of amazing, as I was reflecting upon these sins, that they're not sins that mankind essentially hasn't changed after 2,700 years. That mankind still is sinful by their nature. We still are fallen. We're still given to some of the same tendencies to sin. Uh, maybe in a different manifestation, but these six are very similar to the sins that we might wrestle with today as well. And I hope that as we look to them, there'd be an encouragement even to ourselves to want to be people who don't bear such worthless fruit in our lives. So let's take a look at these six woes. First of all, there's the woe to greedy property owners, okay? Woe to greedy property owners. Now, verse 8 through 10, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. So you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. For 10 acres of vineyard would yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. And what God's doing here is, is this woe upon these greedy property owners is that God condemns these wealthy landowners who are greatly, greedily, adding to the land. They just keep adding and adding to the land, holding land to themselves, gaining more land than they ever need to live. Now, God is not condemning wealth, per se, or the acquisition of, of property. Many of you may be landowners as well. In fact, many of uh, God's people he's, he's in, our, in the Old Testament also were wealthy. But rather, God judges the means and the motive of gaining such wealth. If one gains wealth through deceit or defrauding the poor, it's condemned. If one gains wealth for the sake of pride or greed, it is wrong. Even today, there are some people who want to gain more property. And I, just, and I always think about property thinking, wow, that's something that uh, I always think about. Some of my parents used to say, you know, if you want to make money, buy property. 
you know, buy property. Did your parents tell you that? You know, that's, uh, if I wish I'd listened to them, you know, if I bought property in San Francisco 20 years ago, I think I'd be pretty wealthy today. But that's okay, right? The fact is that it's a reasonable to own property. It's a form of investment. And I want to make sure you leave here not thinking that, oh, because I own multiple property, I'm a sinner. But rather, there's a point here that these people were adding house to house, field to field. And so basically, they're, they're living alone in the midst of a huge field. They didn't need this whole field. They didn't need it for themselves. But they had more than they ever needed. And sometimes when we acquire wealth and possession, it comes sinful when you acquire more than you ever need. God intends us to have acquisition to provide for a family, but to also provide for others' needs as well. That we would be a blessing to others. That we would be able to share our, our blessings with others. That's, you know, that God wants us to be people who give, learn what it means to, to give more than to receive. And that's just, I just want to, you know, think about that because I know we can acquire much stuff. And, you know, there's retirement. You want to provide for your family in retirement. There's, you want to, uh, you want to be able to maybe uh, help your kids through school. And that's, and that's important as well. These are things that I, particularly as a young father, am thinking about, thinking through. But when we are just, when we get to the place where we're just acquiring, just to acquire more for ourselves, and we neglect the ministering of the needs of others, uh, it becomes sinful. It becomes, we become like these greedy property owners. There's a second woe that we find here. Oh, oh, by the way, verse, I forgot to mention, verse 9 and 10 talk about God's judgment upon them with that basically they would find that they would eventually lose their houses, that they'd have all these houses, but they would become desolate. They wouldn't even be able to live in them because they're going to be taken into captivity. All their vineyards are going to be left fallow, even though the produce of their vineyards are going to be, uh, are going to have very small returns. So let's take a look at the second, the second woe. The woe to self-seeking drunkards in verse 11 to 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine, but they do not pay, pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. God condemns here those who basically live for their own pleasure instead of God's pleasure. Uh, we often say America is like one of the most hedonistic societies. All our advertisements, all about our pleasures, you know, what's, have fun, to be happy, you know, all these things. It's, it's very, it, our, we're very driven towards that. We, we all think like that. We want to have fun. Uh, you know, when we ask, go, when you go home to, to, uh, from church today, a lot of times we ask for kids, well, or you ask, they come from school, you ask them what? Oh, what did you learn, right? No, you ask them, did you have fun today? Did you have fun today at school? Did you have fun at church? Did you have fun at work? What's up with that? You know, that is fun. Sure, it should be fun. But God wants us to please him not for his pleasure, not our own pleasure. As we see here, it's this picture here that God condemns these people for having uh, basically be focused on their own pleasures. These Israelites were drinking all the time, all day long. Is the, they were in, that was their pleasure. By the way, I mean, just as a, kind of a sigh, I want to say this because, because it's a reality out there. If you know someone who gets up in the morning and the first thing they want is to drink alcohol, that person, they're your loved one. If that's you, you have a problem with alcohol. You really do. That you would be consumed to want to have a drink of, of alcohol. Now, maybe if that's the only thing you have in the house to drink. Okay, I get that. But in this world, there's not the only thing. If that is what you need to drink to kind of give you a kick or, you know, get you going, really, that shows that you have a, 
the alcohol is the kind of place where it's having a, a more control upon you. You can say this about, of course, uh, coffee as well uh, to some extent, you know. So if I want to point the finger at myself. But these people, but wine is, is worse than this. It controls you, right? This is a drunkenness. They were basically, if you look at these words, basically this describes a party. They love to party. This reminds me of college. People just love to party. All you want to do is just drink and just eat and just hang out with your friends, have loud music. That's what this picture was. Now, there's nothing wrong to party. It's not necessarily, it's not sinful to drink. It's not sinful to listen to music. But what we notice here is that these people were so consumed with drink and partying that they neglected the deeds of the Lord. They neglected the words, the work of God's hands. They neglected the people of God. They didn't care about God nor his people. They didn't care about what God was doing in this world. They were more busy thinking about their lives, their will for their lives, than God's will for their lives. And that's kind of the, the hopefully you can draw that application from this. They were just caught up in drinking instead of the works of God. There's a third woe that God pronounced upon Israel, and that's the woe to the defiers of God. Verse 18 and 19. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. See, God condemns here those who sin brazenly before God. They are pictured as dragging basically iniquity, uh, sin behind them with cords and cart ropes. It's a, can you imagine, you know, when we have sin, it's not something you want to, you know, drag around publicly, right? But imagine if your sin was actually a load. You would, these people were dragging it around quite publicly. It sort of reminds me of the story of even the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian had this big burden on his back. That's kind of a sin. Sin is like that. It's a big burden. But these Israelites were dragging them publicly with the cords and with cart ropes. But what's kind of interesting is that as they do so, instead of they doing it, uh, they try to hide their sin, they openly display their sin. And what's more, they challenge God in the process. Verse 19, they challenge God to hasten his coming. They say, hey, Lord, show yourself and we'll believe. Yeah, we got the sin, but show yourself and then we'll turn away from it. But really... You know, maybe you know people like that. Well, you know, hey, I, know, you know, I may be a sinner, but why doesn't God just show up? He just shows himself. I'll, I'll turn away from my sin. Well, there's a whole generation when the Lord God showed up who did not turn away from their sin. He's tried that, and it has not worked. did not work. Really, these people who are challenging God were in reality uh, revealing their, their, lack, their lack of fear of God. They didn't believe in God. They didn't think he would judge them because they don't believe that he is, and they were wrong. There's a that this these these kind of people uh, naturally are also caught up in the next woe in verse twenty. Woe to the perverters of truth. This is also another sin that was guilt, Israel was guilty of. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, God further condemns those who twist the truth of God. And when, you know, people don't like basically 
God telling us that that's something that's sinful. I mean, even we sometimes kind of say, oh, man, we don't, we don't like it. But we know it's good for us. We know that God will, should, ought, needs to show us our sin because we need to turn away from sin because sin is not good for us. But the world who does not believe in God doesn't like it when Christians or others basically tell them that God says that this is sin, this is wrong. And so the world as a whole likes to turn things around. It likes to call evil good and good evil. It's, they try to normalize the things that we call sin. In our world, we see that today, very common. Our world tries to normalize, make things, put things that are weak, the Bible declares as sinful, and just kind of puts it in our face in every single day of our lives, in our media, in our news, in, our, in, our, in the internet feeds, in, in our television, in our movies, in our radios, so that it becomes simply normal. And in fact, if you call it a bad or sinful thing, you're the one who's not normal. You're the one who's actually sinful. That's how the world operates. It basically perverts the truth of God, calls evil good and good evil. Sins that many, some of the common sins today that people, the world is trying to justify, sins like adultery. You know, we just think of that Ashley Madison website thing. The people, it's actually normal for people. It's like, in fact, oh no, make your marriage better by having an affair. What? We think of the murder of unborn children. Oh man, no, no, this is actually good for the world. If we just murder so that everybody will be wanted. Let's just murder those who are unwanted. There's a lot of unwanted living people in our world. Should we just go around murdering them? That's evil. To call it good or right or choice does not make it right still wrong the world is perverting the truth and sadly we can only talk about the sin of homosexuality as well that's a common one today sadly this kind of twisting of truth also creeps into the church creeps into the people of god we start and when a church starts saying oh that, that's no longer sinful oh that that's sin. oh that's that's not sinful either that's just well you know that was uh that's some, that was a cultural thing but i tell you no church can thrive no church can thrive. We see a sea of dead churches. And they, why are they dead? Because they fail to hold on to a clear doctrine of sin. Fail to hold on to what if the God says is sin is sin. And what God says is right is right. When there's no clear doctrine of sin, there is no need for a Savior, right? If you don't have sin, why do you need a Savior? If there's no such thing as sin, why do we go to church? We shouldn't even bother. Just go. You know, If you don't believe in sin, just Yes. Go live your life. Go do whatever you want to do, essentially. And that's why we need to put... The fact is, the Bible says there is such a thing as sin. There is such a thing as truth and right and good. There is such a thing as that which is bitter. There is such a thing that is such as darkness. And let's never confuse it for light or sweet. There's another uh, woe that... Uh, that God condemns Israel for. And the fifth woe is the woe to the self-important. And you can say the woe to the proud or the conceited as well. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. You see, God condemns here those who think they are greater than they actually are. That they, are, that they think themselves to be wise or clever or stronger or smarter or better. Such people are full of themselves and their abilities that they believe they don't need God. And certainly, even as Christians, we ourselves should never think that we are better than anyone else. We're not better than the world because we have the truth. We only have the truth because God opened our eyes. 
we only can live righteously by the grace that is in Christ. We're no better than that. We're in by our nature. We are sinners like the whole world. We need to always remember that when we interact with the world. Because one of the world's criticism of us, and perhaps fairly, is maybe sometimes we get out arrogant and proud. And I know that I'm susceptible to that, just as uh, many of you may be as well. There's a atheist bumper sticker out there, you know, that you guys ever see. It says, good without God. You ever see that one? Can we see that? Or someone has plastered on buses sometimes and advertises. Sometimes I've wanted to write something. Uh, you know, not, it's not graffiti or, you know, vandalism or anything. But I've always wanted to write there, you know, God, we're all good as, as dead without God. We're good as dead without God. Because with, with, we are, without God, we are all bad. We're all sinful. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. There's no one who continually does good and who never sins. We're all, by our nature as human beings under the curse of the fall, are given to sin. We're all bad, but we need, only with God do we find life. Only through Christ, through faith in him can we find it. But without him, we're not very good. We're in danger of death. So woe to those who think that they are more important, that they are conceited, think that they don't need God. And then lastly, the sixth uh, woe upon Israel, woe to the to corrupt leaders. Verse 22, 23. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. There's the, the theme here of wine drinking here. Uh, just kind of perhaps because of the, the vineyard analogy earlier. But this is some, something that uh, wine was so common that there was a lot of problems in their society with it, with wine. Verse 23. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the one who are in the right. And God here condemns leaders who abuse their office, essentially. Our world leaders, you know, if you think about world leaders, they're often, you see kind of photos when they get together for big meetings, they always have like banquets or dinners and they'll have, you know, they'll have wine and the good food. You know, they're not going to go to McDonald's and they're not going to go to Burger King to, for their meetings, right? They always get fine wine, probably from Napa, you know, and they're going to get good food, probably from the North, Northern California, California, you know, some of the best food in the world is in our state. But they're going to, so they're going to have these big meals. And, and that's what leaders do. We get it. You know, you got to, you know, have these kind of schmoozing things where they kind of entertain their guests. And then in the entertainment, fulfill their business, whatever that may involve, whether it's, you know, coming to making policy decisions, coming to treaties, uh, making uh, uh, laws and rules, influencing, uh, reaching out to uh, getting people together to, uh, to work together. So these are what government leaders do. And I don't begrudge them that the, the opportunity, the necessity to have meals and, and drink while, while they do their work. But for the people of Israel, these leaders in particular, they started becoming known, instead of what they were doing, their work, they were becoming known by their feasts, their drinking. They were, they were, they were being boasting about how much wine they could drink even. When the reality is great leaders, these great leaders were, no, these leaders were known by their, how much they could drink. But great leaders ought to be known for being able to lead a nation in justice and righteousness. These leaders were known for their taking bribes. They were known for taking away the rights of those who were right. There was not just, there was injustice. There was inequity. There was unrighteousness among Israel's leaders. Instead of being heroes in justice and righteousness, they were heroes in drinking. And so, for these six woes, God condemned Israel. These were the worthless fruit of the vineyard of the Lord. 
And if we look at them all, we, we hopefully I've kind of I preached it more in an application kind of sense. If you didn't notice, I didn't explain the text as much as as I normally would. But I want us to see them as sins that apply to us today. They're sins that we they're still to some way or other that our world and our that ourselves can be just as guilty of today. They're still prevalent. We need to watch out for them, guard them in our own hearts, guard them in our society, that we would not allow ourselves to be guilty of them because these are called, God calls, worthless fruit. When we greedily acquire possessions, when we seek our own pleasure instead of God's work, when we hold on to sin and defiance of God, when we pervert the truth and we think we are good without God, when we allow corrupt leaders among us, we hinder the church from being God's blessing to the world. And if we allow it to continue, we can count on the fact that God will do something about it. God will bring about a judgment, a discipline upon his people, just as he does for the nation Israel. And that's the second theme that we find here in verse 8 to 30. And that is the coming judgment. I, I'm tempted to say the coming harvest in the sense that this is, this, is the, this is what's going to happen as a result of their iniquity and their sinful deeds. And in our passage, two times, Isaiah tells of the coming judgment Upon God's chosen nation. And in each section, these two passages, God will tell about, describe the coming judgment and exile that's coming. But then he'll also give an overarching reason for God's judgment. The the big reason. I know we have six specific reasons, but God's going to give like two overarching reasons. And I, I outlined it in this way. First of all, in verse 13 to 17, by the way, you may have noticed we skipped it earlier. But after the first two woes, we find this, this coming judgment warned in verse 37. And the coming judgment is upon you is coming because of their ignorance of God's word. Because of their ignorance of God's word. Look at verses 13 to 17 with me. The, words, the passage begins with therefore. So it's after the two woes, um, the first two woes. And it says, therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. And their honorable men are, famine, are famished. And their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged his throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her, within her descend into it. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the lambs will graze in their pasture. And strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. Now, a lot of this is just imagery, a lot of figurative speech here that's kind of uh, challenging to interpret. And uh, just for because, just for, by the sake of time, we really don't have to, to go into the details. But this is a description of God's judgment. That God is going to send his people into exile. Verse 13, if you'll notice, is the first time that we find the word exile in the book of, in the book of Isaiah. Now, I've mentioned several times already, and maybe you know as a, as a student of the Bible, that God's coming judgment upon Judah for their sin is exile. They're going to be conquered by someone, by another nation, and they're going to be cast out of the, the promised land. This promise is made to them in the Mosaic Law. In Deuteronomy 28, Verse 36 is a specific kind of instance of it. But there in Deuteronomy 28, God promised Israel, if you obey, I'm going to bless you. If you obey my law, I will bless you. If you disobey my law, I will bring upon you curses. And one of the curses that's described in 28:36 is that God would allow a nation to come conquer them, and then they would be taken into captivity, into exile. 
And so here we find the first time, this very explicit statement that God says, therefore, because of my people's sin, they will go into exile. It's not about the people who are the, the nations, the rest of the people of the world. God is talking specifically about his people Israel here. This judgment is described and characterized by death. In verse 14, it's characterized by a humbling before the Lord where they will be humbled and God will be exalted. Verse 15 to 16, it'll be characterized by no, them no longer enjoying the land, but others will enjoy this land. According to verse 17, this is because the people of Israel will no longer be in the land. They will actually be in a foreign land serving foreign, foreign nations and foreign gods. Notice, though, the overarching reason for this exile Mentioned in verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. God is condemning and judging Israel because they lacked knowledge. And the greedy property owners, the self-seeking drunkards, and the, the first two woes, were condemned for being ignorant of God's word. Now, just because they're ignorant of God's word doesn't mean that they're any less guilty, though. They were just as guilty, just as if you didn't know the laws of our land, but you went around and you violated them, a police officer comes up to you, they would still arrest you. They would still give you a ticket. It was still you because you would still be guilty of having broken the law. So ignorance doesn't make you less guilty. It's not even a, a, it's, it's not even an, if a legitimate excuse to say, well, I'm, I'm not guilty. No. Or that you would be not spared from punishment. But these... Israelites, though they're ignorant of God's word, doesn't make them less guilty. Because we learn from Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, that essentially these people are ignorant of God's word because they didn't care what God's word had to say. They didn't bother to find out. You know, if, God, if you knew that there was that, uh, that uh, well, some of you still have your parents around, but if I, you know, if your parents uh, were passed away and you found that there was a book, you discovered a book, uh, maybe a diary, they reveal to you their thoughts, their just hopes, their dreams for you. What would you do with that book? Nah, I don't even care. You'd be reading that book front to end. God gave his law to the people of Israel so he would tell them his hopes, his dreams, his plans, his will for their lives. But they instead just chucked it away. Hosea 4, chapter 4, verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. See, the people of God ought to know God's word. We ought to know God's word. And if we're ignorant of it, it doesn't make us this guilty. Judgment would still come. So that's what we find. That's the first description of God's coming judgment. The second description of God's coming judgment is found in Verses 24 to 30. It's after the, the third through sixth woes. And it's because of the rejection of God's word. And it's a long section. I'll just read it for us. Therefore, verse 24, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. 
He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. Again, once more, a lot of imagery here. Uh, We just don't have the the time to describe it, but we quickly just summarize the description of God's judgment. First of all, we see this in verse 25 to 24 to 25, the consuming wrath of God. This is God's anger that has been kindled upon the nation of Israel, upon the nation. It's pictured as a flame. Verses 26 to 30 tells us that the judgment will come in the form of a conquering nation. It says, verse 26 particularly, that he's going to whistle, God's going to whistle from the ends of the earth for this distant nation to come, and it will then come swiftly. It's described much more in, in several pictures, in the picture of, a, of an army that's swift, that's ready, that's prepared, that's ready for battle. It's, it's not going to be uh, caught with its, you know, its, its weapons or shield down. It's, it's ready for battle. It's bows and everything. It's, it's honed for warfare. What's more, it's pictured as a lion or a lioness, like a lion when it comes and it creeps in upon its prey. It basically snatches its prey, pounces on it, and then carries it away to be eaten. And that's what's going to happen to Israel and Judah. They're going to be taken into captivity by a foreign nation that God's going to call. And just like the first section, verse 24, in the Verse 24, we find the over, another overarching reason for God's judgment, and that is that they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word, holy, the word of the Holy One of Israel. Basically, if we look at woes 3 through 6, they could be summarized, categorized by this rejection, by an outright rejection of God's word. They committed those sins in knowing violation of what God had said. You know... We might have compassion upon one who ignorantly doesn't know but breaks God's law. But one who knows God's law and yet consciously rejects it, rebels against it, and disregards it is rebellious, is a sin of rebellion. And that is something that deserves God's judgment. And for this reason, God's going to reject them. Now, historically, all these, these prophecies of judgment are fulfilled by God. Uh, We'll look at it in some of the upcoming sermons. But in 722 B.C., the, the Assyrian Empire will come and conquer the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom of Israel, and take them into exile. That's what we see in 2 Kings 17.6. And then later in 586 B.C., Babylon, will, the Babylonian Empire, will come and conquer the southern kingdom and take them into exile as well, according to 2 Kings 25, verse 11. So God promises the nation of Judah here, that the nation, because of their sin, is going to be destroyed. It's going to be taken into exile. And in timing, in Isaiah's lifetime, Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom. And then several 150 years later, this Babylonian empire comes and finishes up with the the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is the parable of the vineyard. 
How, what can we learn from this parable then? What does it have to do with us today? I think it's kind of, it's, we can learn a lot about God's promises. We see God's wrath that we should, that God's, that God um, made promises to Israel, but because they disobeyed, God was faithful to fulfill his promise to, to judge them. But that also tells us to see, and just think about God's faithfulness. If he's faithful to fulfill his promise to judge them, then he's going to fulfill his promise to also save them. And then we're going to see that in, in future messages as well. So there's a picture of really God's faithfulness here, even as it's really a picture of God's judgment. But we all spoke, certainly we as the people of God today, the, the church, we're not under the Mosaic law. We're not under the old covenant. So God isn't promising here to us. I'm not going to preach to you and say, well, obey God or God's going to have some nation conquer you uh, and then going to take you into captivity. That would be, you know, wow, that would be crazy. But that's possible. I mean, that could happen, but that's not what God's promising here to us. So what is this passage teaching us? What does it teach us? And, and I've already kind of alluded to, you, to us earlier as a conclusion. Is this, that Israel's failure to be a fruitful vineyard for the Lord and the subsequent judgment is a lesson for us today to make sure that we are fruitful. Israel was judged because they were not fruitful. They did not bear the fruit that God had intended for them to bear as their chosen, as his chosen people. He had done everything for them, but they did not bear fruit. As the people of God today, we too are chosen, aren't we not? Chosen by God, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Sit on our hands for good works, for good works. We're, we're created to do good works. We're created to bear good fruit. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you so that you may bear much fruit. Bear fruits. We are created in Christ Jesus to bear fruits. And if we do not, God will be dishonored and displeased. And what's more, Jesus actually connects this parable of the vineyard with this truth in one of Jesus' parables. And it's in Matthew 21, verse 33 to 44. It's really cool when we see uh, most, much of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. And in this particular parable, the parable of the vineyard owner, Jesus actually quotes Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 2 in this telling of the parable. And he, as, as Jesus tells this parable, and so you can imagine as he quotes Isaiah, all of what we talked about today about the vineyard is basically the context and setting it comes for the people of Israel who are the, the Jewish priests and, this, and this, the leaders, the elders who are listening to Jesus' parable, they would have had all this understanding. It would have filled it in for them that this vineyard that he's talking about in his parable is, is Israel. So remember the parable of the vineyard owner? The vineyard owner basically plants a vineyard, exactly described here in Isaiah 5. He makes, he does everything for it. He makes it a choice vineyard. He makes it the, the best vineyard in the, war, in the land in a sense. That he's done everything that can be done for it. But then the owner, and this is where Jesus kind of takes it and he adds on to the parable. It says that the vineyard owner rented out this vine, this vineyard to vine growers. Basically to, uh, to, to people who would then take care of the, vine, the vineyard. And then at the harvest time would pay back to the vineyard owner a portion of the harvest. They would get to keep some of it as their pay. But then they would give back to the vineyard owner a portion of that harvest. But when the harvest time came, the vineyard owner sent his slaves, and then he sent his son to go collect. But what did those vine growers do? They, they killed. They killed his slaves. They killed his son. They beat them. They didn't want to pay the vineyard owner what the vineyard owner deserved. 
what the vineyard owner had provided for them to, so that they would not only provide for themselves, but also then to pay back the Lord. Of course, that, that parable, Jesus was speaking of himself. He's the son. He's the son of the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner is none other than God himself. But Jesus is the son. And then Jesus asked the chief priests and the elders of that, that he was speaking the parable to, well, that, what do they think? What do they think? What, what, what should be done to the vine growers of this parable? And they answered that he should get rid of the vine growers and rent the vineyard owners to others who would pay him the proper proceeds. And by their own mouths, they basically condemned themselves because Jesus then in verse 43 says this, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And this is, this is speaking of the church. God, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, because they, had, uh, because they rejected not only uh, their responsibility to take care of the vineyard, the nation, to experience God's, the blessings of God's kingdom and to share that blessings with others, God took, that, took away the kingdom of God from them temporarily, as we learn in Romans 9, 11, and gives it to a people who will bear fruit of this land. He gives it to the Gentiles, the nations. It's, and he say, gives it to us as Gentiles. He brings we, we now come to experience the blessings of the kingdom, the blessings of salvation, the blessings of faith in Christ. But we are given these blessings not just to enjoy them, but to make sure that we produce the fruit of it. So yes, we've been blessed as the people of God. We've received Christ. We, are, we as the God's chosen people of this, in this time are to bear fruit. We're to share these blessings that we've received with others. We're to go out into the world and to make disciples of all nations. We're to, as part of Christ's church, to, to tell others of the, the glories of Jesus Christ. We're to proclaim it not only by our words, but we're to live it in our lives. We're not to allow these worthless fruit in our lives, but let our lives demonstrate fruits of righteousness, fruits of justice, and fruits of the truth of God's word and the truth of God's gospel. So let us be people who are faithful as God's chosen people today. Let us bear fruit for the Lord as we abide in Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time and to study this passage of the vineyard. And we thank you, Lord, for even difficult passages where we see descriptions of your wrath, descriptions of your anger. Lord, I know today it's in our world, most people don't like to hear about wrath and anger. And maybe even some among us today may kind of uh, sort of cringe when we hear of your wrath or your anger towards sinners. Lord, maybe we need to talk more about love, some perhaps. But we know that even your wrath and your anger is a loving wrath. It's a loving anger. Father, it's not because you are not patient. You're not long-suffering. You have been more so for all mankind. In fact, you have been so loving that you made sure to send your son to appease and be the propitiation for your wrath. That he bore upon the cross all your wrath for sin so that we who believe upon Christ may be spared of that wrath, may be delivered from sin and the penalty of sin and through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would now, now as those who have received this forgiveness in Christ, may we not just sit on our hands. May we not be a people who just comfortably enjoy our blessings, who just live life for our pleasures, but we live life for your pleasure. 
that we live life about your deeds, about your works, that we'd be like a vineyard ought to be, bearing fruit, good fruit that you have intended for us to bear. This we pray, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, God bless you this week as you go forth. Have a stick around.